Our reading today is from 1 Corinthians um, chapters 12 through 14. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. So good to be with you. I love when Mark claps for me when I come up. I'll tell you what, nothing gets me going like four claps in the morning. Let's go. Um, hey, do we have any people who just love small talk? Most people, you, you hate it. You just do not like small talk. You're like, give me the meat right away. I'm just going to confess and call me unspiritual. I love some small talk. So let me give you some advice for people who hate small talk. You're only as good as your intro question. And I'm going to give you a good question this morning. In 2023, one of the best small talk questions, you've been watching any good shows lately? Boom. People will run with that thing. Okay. You don't have to go anymore. You can just ask and let people talk. I usually just kind of, I don't even ask. I just start talking about the shows I've been watching because I love shows, man. Oh my goodness. Whatever character traits or like vice it is to just like stay up late and binge a show, regardless of whatever responsibilities you have the next morning, that's my vice, okay? That's my deadly sin, okay? Whatever it is, I've got it. Um, and and one, of my, one of my things that we end up doing quite a bit, Kayla will kind of start a show and be watching an episode or two, and I'll like kind of hop in episode three, and I'll just be hooked. I don't even know what's going on. I don't know their name, but the way the melody of the music is playing, you know, I'm like, hey, what's going on here? And it's fun for like 10 minutes for her before I just start drilling her with all the questions, right? Like, hey, who's that guy? Hey, what's his name? Why, 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 what's the beef there? You know, like, what's the drama? Is she, what's, you know, like I got all the questions until eventually I figure out what's happening and then I'm in that thing, you know? And, and, and it's the context that really matters, right? Like I can experience the show and I'm like kind of in based on the music or like the, the dramatic scene. And it's good. 
But when I get the full story, when I get the full context of it, I'm in. I'm all the way in, two feet in, 4 a.m. I might still be in watching the show. But context really matters, right? Context allows us, in some ways we can experience something, but the context allows us to get the fullness of what is supposed to happen. And some of you, I'm not going to point fingers, some of us, let's say us, let's make this a we thing, okay? We have read maybe the, one of the most beautiful passages in all of the scriptures a little bit out of context, okay? 1 Corinthians 13, in fact, is not a wedding verse. I'm just going to drop that there, okay? It is not in the context of a bride and a groom. It's not. It's fine there. It's great. It's a beautiful passage. I'm saying you can experience it, but it's actually not in that context. I don't even know if you noticed this, but I ha- we had... We read the last verse of chapter 12 and the first verse of 14 for a very important reason, that this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, is actually sandwiched right in between two of the most comprehensive teachings on how to operate in the gifts of the Spirit. It's fascinating, isn't it? It drops us in between how do we pursue the power of God and yet remain in the love of God. And that's what Paul is marrying together in this passage, the power of God and the love of God. And they are inseparable, that we cannot experience the power of God unless we remain in the love of God. And the love of God actually pushes us into a longing and a desire for the power of God. Uh, I I worked for an organization called Athletes in Action on campus for like five or six years. And we had this girl from Nigeria named Mamola who played soccer here. And I actually remember one of the things that she said maybe like four years ago, it just stuck with me forever. But she said, in, in Nigeria, one of the main things that we talk about is the power of God. Jesus is the God who is more powerful than anything else. She says, but when I came to America, all you guys talk about is the love of God. And, she's actually, and she actually said, she wasn't like nitpicking. She said, I'm so thankful that I've experienced both. And I was like, wow. Amen, girl. That's good, you know? I'm going to write that down and put it in the sermon in about five years, okay? <laughs> That's what I told her. The power of God and the love of God. We need both. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we unpack this amazing passage, 1 Corinthians 13. But let's pray and we'll get into it. Jesus, we come to you this morning as your friends. You don't call us slaves or servants any longer, but that you say that we're friends and we have access into your presence and into your heart, into your ways. And so this morning we don't come even begging, but we just come asking, Lord, would you meet with us? It's what you long to do. You long to teach us. You long to overwhelm us with your love. And so we ask Holy Spirit this morning that that this would not just be concepts or thoughts about love, but that you would pour the love of God into our hearts this morning. Amen. Amen. So Paul ends chapter 12 with this. And, And by the way, they actually didn't have chapter and verse back then. That's something that we've done to the text. So he wasn't like period chapter 12, start new chapter, but he was just in this kind of stream of consciousness thought. And it lingered into the next thing. And he says, now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. And then he continues. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, 
I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I might boast but have not love, I gain nothing. And we've been in this series on life with the Spirit, looking about how do we experience life with the Holy Spirit together, experience and understand who the Holy Spirit is, what is his role in our lives. And we've been looking at the gifts of the Spirit, that he gives expressions of himself in and through us. That's what we looked at in 1 Corinthians 12. But most of us have actually missed the easy kind of connection between 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, right? 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about different kinds of tongues. And then here in 13, it says, if I speak in tongues of men or angels, but have not love, I'm nothing but a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. So before he even gets into the practicals of, of what it looks like to operate in the gift of tongues, he says, if your attitude and your spirit is not of love, this is what it sounds like, a gong or a cymbal just banging against itself. It's distracting. It means nothing to us because it's not birthed out of love. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy, if I can uh, do, what does it say, can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, he says, I'm nothing. And we talked about that last week. We, we, we talked about having faith and belief for healing, but he's saying it actually stems from and overflows from a heart of love. And then he says, if it doesn't, not, it's, it's, it's something still. He says, it's nothing. Without love, the gifts are nothing. And then he just gets all dramatic, right? He's like, if I give everything I have to the poor, if I give my body away, but have not love, I'm nothing, as if to say, no matter what I do in this life, no matter how spiritual I might be, if it's not in and by and through love, it's nothing. Power without love is nothing in the kingdom of God. And what Paul is saying here is that these are directly connected, right? He's not actually contrasting them by drawing out that here's a power way, here's the love way, but he's saying he's, he's actually marrying them together, drawing on the harmony of the gifts of the Spirit and the love of God. And it also highlights our own tendency to drift away from love, to drift from the heart and the core of what it means to follow Jesus, to have a heart of love, and to drift into something I'm just going to call being spiritual. And you know that feeling, okay? Even if you haven't experienced many of the gifts of the Spirit, you, you know when you're in the Bible study or around a small group and somebody says, what's that verse again? Like, seek first his, um, and you know that feeling inside when you know that verse and it wells up inside of you. And on the outside, you're like, oh, I think it's Matthew 6, 33. Seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. But on the inside, you know, you're like, let's go. I know this. I read this. This is my moment. I, first, I know this. Seek first his kingdom. You know, you get really hyped up about it. You know that feeling. When you get a little spiritual on the inside, on the outside, you cover it up real nice. But that ego, that pride wells up. It's a slippery slope. And what starts is like this pure motive of just reading Scripture, this pure motive of I want to seek what the Spirit has for me. Our flesh, the world, our spiritual enemy has a way of trying to distract our attention and our gaze away from what matters and can drift from a pure motive to trying to be seen by people, to 
to wanting attention. And what Paul is saying here, that's not love. And the gifts and life with Jesus and his spirit is meant to be one out of love. But it also works the opposite, right? Fear of how we are perceived, fear of how people see us is actually one of the main hindrances to why we do not seek the gifts of the Spirit, right? So let's just, let's just throw out a scenario that would like never happen, okay? Just a totally made-up situation. Let's say you have a friend, and they're, you're in a conversation with them, no small talk here, just straight meat, okay? And they're kind of sharing their heart. They're saying, man, I've just been feeling really anxious lately. Or maybe they're sharing, like, I have this physical thing that's been really bothering me for a long time. And you have this thought that pops into your head, right? You're like, I think I should pray for them. But then you also have this like competing thought that comes in and be like, that would be so weird. That would be really awkward if I stopped in the middle of the conversation and just prayed for them. That would never happen to any of us. That's never happened to me. Every time I've ever had that thought, I always pray. I'm kidding, okay? That happens to us all the time. The simple thought of maybe like, maybe, maybe I might look a little weird doing something. Maybe this might be a little awkward, actually holds us back. It's, it, it, it's fear that lives inside of us that holds us back from actually seeking some of these things. Like, what if you were in a prayer circle and you were praying and, and, and you felt like somebody gave you a passage or a picture for somebody that you were to share and you're like, ah, that'd be so weird. You know what would move you past that? Love. Love moves us past our own insecurities, our own fear, the, the fear of feeling awkward or whatever that might be. Because you also know those moments when you just throw your theology out the window, when your fear is gone because you're so desperate for something that you pray. You know that. You know that feeling. And it's love that cultivates our hunger for power, our desire for it. Because really what prayer is, and in fact prayer, especially in the kind that is praying for other people, really what it is is our love for people, the presence of our love for people, and the awareness of our lack of resources. To say, I do not have what it takes to help in this person's life, but I love them so much. And what you do is pray. What you do is seek more of God's power in their life. And love will always require risk. It always does. Any relationship of love that you've ever been in your entire life has required some amount of risk. I remember when I met Kayla, we met at a camp, Christian camp, another statistic, add us to the list. <laughs> Christian camps for marriage and Jesus. That's, what they, that's why they exist, I think, mostly. But we met at this camp, and the camp, let me tell you, it was nine days long, okay? That's it. And I, I was in, man. I was in. I was ready to risk. You know what I'm saying? I was ready. Um, we actually, about three days after the camp, we scheduled a trip for me to come from Colorado out to Columbia, Missouri, because we're going to do some long distance stuff. And you know how long I scheduled that trip? 10 days. That makes no sense. We had known each other for nine. And I was like, you know what's a good idea? I should fly out there and spend 10 days with this girl that I barely know. That makes no sense. I told my family and I was going to go see them. And they're like, how long are you going? I was like, like 10 days. They're like, really? I was like, yeah, yeah. Now that you say that. Like, what if it doesn't go well? It's like, well, <laughs> it's a good thought, you know? I don't know. But it requires risk. Any love that you have for somebody requires risk. 
And I just want to say, as we move into things of the Spirit, the Spirit longs to speak to us. He longs to move in and through us. But it only goes as far as we are willing to risk. And what Paul is even centering us on here is love. Love always drives our risk. When you love people, you will risk for them. You'll risk looking foolish and silly and weird and awkward because your love outweighs that whatever else that feeling is. Love cultivates our own hunger for power, but power is nothing without love. But it does lead us to the question, like, what is love, really, you know? Love on the surface, like, it sounds great, but do we ever think about, like, what it actually is? And I love this. This is one of the most clear teachings and pictures of what love is. Verse 4 starts, it says, love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Let's look at this a little bit. Let's unpack this just, just for a couple minutes here. Love is patient. Love is not in a rush. In fact, a few authors, especially in the past couple years, have noted that hurry is actually the enemy of our own love. And you know that. Because usually when you're in a rush... You're like the most loving version of yourself, right? Like, no, you're not, okay? Whenever I'm in a rush, my, the love I have is just squeezed out because I'm just in a hurry, and I'm like, we got to do this thing, okay? I don't have time to deal with your emotional whatever you have, okay, right? Because whenever we're in a rush, love is, can't be present. And I don't just mean like the busyness of our lives, although there's probably something to be said there, but I mean the state of your soul, the rush and the busyness and the hurry that lives inside of us, but love is slow. It takes its time. Love is to be present with people, which apparently is like really, really hard. <laughs> I actually just read this study that more than half of our waking moments are spent thinking about something other than what we're actually doing in real time. I'm not going to think about that as I'm preaching right now. I'm just going to pretend like I didn't hear that. And that for all 30 minutes right now, you're just going to be thinking. But the reality is 15 of it. <laughs> got to be good for 15, and 15 you're not going to even remember. So that's fine, because you're just going to be thinking about other things. But that's the reality. We're almost always thinking about it. being present is really hard. But love is to be patient. It's to be present. And it's interesting that Paul even starts here, because somewhere else he says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy, to encourage those who are timid, to take tender care of those who are weak. And then he says, and be patient with everyone, <laughs> right? Like encourage the weak, kind of urge those who are being lazy, but, to, but reality is you're going to need patience with everybody. He's reminding us that we're not to relate to one another as projects, but people, and that people are messy People don't have it all together, and that we're not in the business of rushing people towards a goal, but slowly walking through life together. Love is patient. 
He's reminding us that our spouse is not a project. Our kids or our friends or the people in our CG, they're not projects, but people that we're going to walk through life together with. And to love them is to be patient with them, to not be in a hurry, to be in the moment with people. And just a side note, as we seek things of the Spirit, this is of the utmost importance. We cannot experience life with the Spirit without being able to be in the moments. See, more life in the Spirit isn't bursting forth on your own energy, but it's actually waiting on the Spirit of God to lead us and to move us. Listening to the Spirit, knowing what He's up to, requires us to be in the moment. The slowness of Jesus, the slowness of His patience and His presence and His pace. So love is patient. Love is kind. Love is generous. It extends good towards other people. If, if patience is this kind of passive, waiting, slowness to life, kindness is the active kind of love. Right? It's not just being nice, but it's, it, it's kindness in the way that Paul means it is, is going out of your way. The inconvenience yourself kind of love. And it's actually tied to the same word as grace, as in God's grace, which we know is far from passive. It implies initiative the willingness to sacrifice your comforts for the comfort of another, to let your kids sleep in the bed kind of kindness. You know, they're coming for our comforts, these kids. But it's our kindness, the giving of your time, your energy, your finances, the eager to help, eager to listen, eager to encourage kind of love. Love is kind. Love is humble. Paul says this, love does not envy. It isn't jealous. It doesn't compare. Love doesn't boast. It's not self-seeking. And this one of like all the traits probably makes the most sense in the context which Paul is talking, right? Because the Corinthian church, they had started to experience these gifts of the Spirit, but it had become a little bit like recess, you know? Like there was like a first, there was a, there was two captains and they were kind of highlighting like, yo, you are first round, you eh, maybe third or fourth round, you know, like it, it became that way. There became a hierarchy. There became a lot of comparison and envy and jealousy. And this is one of the pitfalls of when we pursue these things. One of the things we have to be aware of. But in reality, it's one of the things we have to be aware of no matter what church setting, no matter what thing, what, what environment you're a part of. It's actually one of the major pitfalls of the word church. The churches that we've talked about are calling word churches because that one or two gifts get all the praise. If you can stand behind this thing and talk a little bit, there's one. And if you can sing, there's another. There's the two gifts. And we're just going to highlight those ones. That is not at all the way that the body of Christ is meant to be. In Ephesians 4, Paul says this. He says, however, each of us have been given a special gift through the generosity of Jesus. He says, that is why the scriptures say when he ascended to the heights and he led a crowd of captives and then he gave gifts to his people, right? When he ascended, he sent the spirit and then he gives the spirit to all of us, which means that we all have the same access to the spirit and gifts that come in and through our lives. It's the joy of the New Testament that he has formed us into a body and we all need each other, right? He uses the same illustration in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Or the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. We need one another. 
And so hear me, we want to be a church that, that majors in seeking the gifts that God has for us and calling out the gifts in other people. When you see something, you highlight it in their life, say, man, that, that is God at work within you because we need each other. And some of us, it's, it's, it actually grieves me that we, we have no idea what some of our gifts are because we've been in environments that have, that have made us spectators and not participants, that we've been in places that we just come, we sit down and we take it in and then we, and we leave. And, and the Spirit of God is inviting you to so much more. You are not just a spectator in this thing. You're not meant to be in the audience. You are a participant in what we are doing as we bring the kingdom here. I had coffee with this young guy in our church this week, and he, he said something that just had me, you know, hype. He said, this is the first church I feel like I've been at where everybody seems hungry for God, not just like a couple people up front. I was like, yo, that's it, bro. Yes, you get it. That's what we're after. We want that. We want to be a hungry church with hungry people who are longing for more of God's activity and work in their life. Not just a couple. We're not just trying to highlight a few people here and there, but we're trying to say, we are in this together. We need each other. It's one of the reasons why we seek the Spirit and His gifts. Because we all have gifts within us. One of the simple prayers that we can be praying is, God, what have you made me to do? What are the gifts that you've put in my life? And then trusting that people are going to call those out in you. That's what we want to be as a church. Love is humble, humble enough to acknowledge that I need gifts and they are for the use and the upbuilding and the encouragement of the other people in the body. And it's humble enough to say and have the capacity to say, you have a gift that I don't have and I need you in my life. Love is humble. Love is not self-seeking. It does not demand its own way. One of my favorite definitions for love is, is to will the good of another person. Just think about that. It's, it's not about you, but it's about the other person and willing whatever is the best thing for them that they need. Love does that. It wills the good of other people. It's not self-seeking. It does not need recognition. It does something purely for the good of the other. It does not do something for the hopes of being praised for that thing or the pat on the back or something in return. Love has no strings attached to it. It was one of Jesus' most common confrontations to the Pharisees. That when you pray, what you do, Pharisees, is you go out in the, in the public space and you make sure everybody can see you when you pray. When you give, you're doing it in front of everybody. And then he encourages them to say, hey, when you give, don't let your right hand even know what your left hand is doing, let alone anybody else. And then he says, when you pray, go to your bedroom, shut the door, and talk to your father in secret, for he sees you in secret. Love isn't self-seeking because we don't, when we live out of love, we are so aware of the Father's reward of his face looking at us, his delight in us, that I don't need it from anywhere else. Love is not self-seeking. Love is slow to anger. It's not quick-tempered. It's not irritable. It doesn't fret over the little things. Love is a non-anxious presence. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love forgives. It doesn't hold on to the bitterness, but it releases the judgment that they have back to the Father. It cancels debts. It doesn't hold things against people. It doesn't hold grudges, but it strives to live at peace with everyone. Love rejoices in the truth. 
that it celebrates and embraces reality. It, it, it isn't fake. Love is sincere. It rejoices in the teachings and the wisdom of God, the way of our good teacher. It loves truth. Love isn't opposed to it, but it actually can't operate without truth. Love rejoices in truth. And love never fails. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes. Love is the most powerful thing in the universe. It was Einstein who called love that. He said, love is the greatest force on earth. E equals MC love. That was terrible. (laughs) You shouldn't do jokes that you think of on the spot because those are bad, usually. Ah, wow. All right. Just making sure you're still with me. That was a lot of love for you. I had to break it up with some Einstein for you cerebral folk out there. But it was Paul's charge to Timothy that we make love our goal. And even Jesus said, they will know you. They will know your mind. They'll know you're my disciples, my followers, by the way you love one another. And isn't that beautiful? Right? Aren't you just like, yeah, let's go love people, you know? And I can just stand up here and be like, it's all about love. But love in theory, love as a dream or a vision, oh, it's beautiful. It's so great. At the wedding, when they read it, and the, the husband and the wife, they stand next to each other, and they're like, love is patient. Love is, you're like, this is going to be the best ever. And you guys giggle. And you know, I'm just going to let you giggle, because you know. But love in practice, love in action, is excruciatingly difficult. It's painful. It's actually the hardest thing in the world to do. Right, even, even preaching this, if I'm honest, I, I was just, I, I, wanna, I don't even want to just practice what I preach, but I want to preach what I live. And when I'm reading this, I'm like, yo, I can't do this. Like, it made me so aware of the gaps that I have in my own life. Right, 1 Corinthians 13, it's beautiful, but it is not encouraging, right? You're not like, oh, I love this. I'm crushing this one. Patient, kind, got it all. Self-seeking, not, not me, you know? Nobody reads it that way. But it's, 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 it's meant to be a way of life. It's meant to be something that's pursued. It's, that's, why, that's why Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, pursue love. In fact, it's the goal of our spiritual formation and discipleship to Jesus that we would become people of love. And it's something that's produced by the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 The patron Hobby Lobby verse, you know, they got it all up in there. The fruit of the Spirit. It starts with this. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It's something that the Spirit and the Spirit alone can produce in you. And it's why when you look at these gaps, it actually creates that longing for power. You say, I can't do this by myself, so I need a different source. Because your flesh the resources that you have that cannot produce a life of love, but you need the Spirit of God to produce love in you. And when we practice the way of Jesus together, filled with the Spirit, that's our only hope to become people of love, to become a person of active love, not just in theory, not just in thought or tweets or cliches, but to actually become a loving person. We need the Spirit of God. We need power. And love actually doesn't make sense 
aside from that, does it? Like, if you just think about the people, I think about the people even in this church that I'm, I look at your life and I'm like, it does not make sense. I do, there is no reason why you would do what you do unless it is the evidence of the spirit inside of you. People who are living and, and, and sacrificing time and energy and space to, to engage in things like foster care or adoption, the, the generosity that's in this church, the giving of your time and your energy and your resources. People who just open up your homes and you invite strangers in. Like, why would you do that? That has no benefit to you at all. But we do it because we have the Spirit of God in us, wooing us to love people, initiating with people in our social circle, encouraging people because we have a greater capacity because the Spirit is doing something in us. It's, it's love. Love requires power, and it doesn't make sense aside from it. It only makes sense by and from the Spirit. But all this stuff about love, it makes me think a little bit. I'm like, hey, Paul, this is beautiful. This is great. But who, who makes you the expert on love, Paul? You know, like what, who gives you the rights to explain to me and to us, besides, you know, that it's going to be in the Bible, what love is? Or how did he even formulate these thoughts, you know? Like he's just talking about the gifts and he just like breaks into poem and is like, love is patient. Love is kind. Like what? It's, it's at least fascinating to think, right? Like Paul's a real person writing this down. And, and Tim Keller, he, he makes this, this point that he says, all Paul is really doing is just describing Jesus. Jesus juke. There it is right there. Boom. You knew it was coming. You knew. He's just describing Jesus. Saying Jesus is love. Jesus is patient with you. He's not in a rush with you. You're not a project to him. He's not just like, come on, get to the next thing, get to the next thing, figure it out. But you're his son, his daughter. He has time for you. He has time for your healing. He has time for your growth, for you to give more and more to him. He's not just your coach or a bad parent or your boss, but there's rest for you. He invites you into his presence where there's nothing to prove there. And he's kind, right? He's not just nice. He's not passively nice and like, oh, good job, buddy. He initiates. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. He came on a mission, birthed out of love and kindness. He is the initiator. He's the one when he explains what the father is like. He says he's like this shepherd who has 100 sheep and 99 of them are doing great. They're all just hanging around. They're doing good in the flock. And one of them just kind of drifts off. And he says, you know what the father is like? Out of his kindness, he leaves the 99 and he runs after that one sheep until he finds him. And then he puts him back on his back and he brings him home. He says, that's the kindness of God. It's his kindness. It's his initiating grace to us. Jesus is humble. He, even when he's describing his own hearts in the Gospels, maybe the only time he does it, he says, I am gentle and lowly and humble in heart. He enters into our stories and into our lives. He doesn't stand at a distance, but he enters in. He's not self-seeking, but he's the most approachable being in the universe. His posture is not a finger pointed at you, but it's with his arms open inviting you to come to him where he will bring you rest. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He's slow to anger. He doesn't get irritated quickly. 
He keeps no record of wrongs. He forgives you. Think of the story where, where, where Jesus is doing a teaching with the Pharisees and, and some of his people around him and, and some other Pharisees. They drag this woman who is just caught in the very act of adultery. He takes her. They grab her by the hair. They throw him at the feet of Jesus. And they said, the law of Moses says death. What do you say? And Jesus, in his slowness and his patience, he bends over and he writes in the sand. And he says, you, you who have no sin, go ahead. You, you, you throw the first stone. And it says one by one, they drop their rocks and they leave until it's just Jesus and the woman and he bends over and he says, neither do I condemn you. The one who, the one who actually could throw a stone, the one who actually had no sin, the one who could keep a record of your wrong and your debt, he says, neither do I condemn you. Now go in peace, go and sin no more. He keeps no record of wrongs. He rejoices in truth. He's the greatest teacher in the universe. He, he, utterly, he is utterly aware of how the world works and how you work, and he longs to teach us how to live, and he rejoices in it. And he never fails. And love is risky. <laughs> in a love relationship with Jesus, there's going to be some risk out there. And I know some of you have been hurt, and you've experienced the pain of putting yourself out in risk, and Jesus is saying, I don't fail. I remember when I was like barely a Christian, I remember that song that we just sang. I knew like a third of a Bible verse, but I loved that song because <laughs> I knew my life was so filled with failure, so filled with disappointment, but I could just muster up the words to say, your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out. It's who he is. And Jesus, he doesn't just do it with talk. He doesn't just do it in theory, but he does it in action. It's not just wishful thinking for him, but he demonstrates love for us. Jesus, who had all power and authority, he doesn't just come with cute cliches and like great teaching. Right on the last night before his disciple, with his disciples, he sits around the table as they're eating and he says, guys, there's no greater love than this, but to lay one's life down for your friends. And I could see some people around the table, you know, they're like, that's good. I like that. You know, no greater love. Lay life down for a friend, you know. But it wasn't just a thought to him. It wasn't just an idea. But it's what he did. In fact, it is the greatest demonstration of love for us that Jesus going to the cross. Romans 5 says that he demonstrates his love for us. That while you and I, while we were sinners, he died for us. That he who knew no sin, he became sin for us. That in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That he didn't just talk about it, but he embodied it. And he went to the cross. And he took the shame and the sin and the weakness and the brokenness of the world on himself. And he spread his arms out. And he declared, it is finished. It's done. I've taken care of it. And he canceled all our debts. He forgave all of our sins, past, present, and future. And he invites us to him to say, I'm going to trust in you. It's the greatest demonstration of love the world has ever known. He, he died for the sins of humanity. And he laid down his power to do it. 
See, walking with the Spirit is about walking with Jesus, and it's about power and love. But we cannot love unless we've embraced the love that comes from Him. First John says we love because He first loved us. And so I'm going to pray here in a moment, but I just want you to consider what that looks like in your own life. Where are the gaps that you have right now? The things that you read in 1 Corinthians, you're like, that is so far from who I am. And rather than feeling the guilt or the shame or the frustration or the condemnation, let it be an invitation from the Spirit of God to say, come to me, I have love that you've never known. And if you're in here and you're just feeling like you've been striving and and, and you just feel like this is too hard, let this word wash over you to say, he is enough for you. That his last words were not get to work, they were it is finished. Let's pray. Even now, Father, we just wait on your presence. The disciples so often thought thought that they had you figured out. And again and again, you, you, you shatter who they thought you were with a bigger, better, more beautiful version of yourself. And Holy Spirit, would you do that in us right now? cliches and thoughts and things that we've maybe known to be true about you, would you, would you drive that from our head into our heart right now? This gospel has power. The good news has power. It's not just in word, but it comes in a way that moves our hearts. So Holy Spirit, will you do that in us even now? Will you make this love a reality in our life? Whatever you're doing in us, would you just increase that? Would you increase our faith? Would you increase our longing for power? Would you make us a praying people who is so moved by our love for people that we cry out and say, God, help us? Encourage our hearts this morning, even as we worship and as we sing. We love you. Amen.